morning you're listening to indielive.radio and this is the daytime show on friday the 23rd of july my name is valerie gold and with my co-presenter marlene halliday we had the great pleasure this week to interview two very interesting but very different women hi marlene hi hi val uh, absolutely delighted to welcome a very interesting guest and that is Terry Housen who is an artist and writer and we're going to be talking to Terry about the book that she's currently involved in writing which is almost finished and Terry is a great supporter of independence and she's based in the Scottish borders. Good morning Terry. Good morning Val, good morning Marlene. I love the introduction, I hope I can live up to some of it. I've spoken to you already, Terry, and I'm sh- I'm telling the listeners now, no, no introduction that I can make could sum up what an amazing character you are. You've done so much. So eh, that's what I'd like to start off. Before we start talking about your book, um, I'd like to maybe talk to you a little bit about your art and your other professional background and teaching. Um, some folk might have seen you on uh Facebook as Indie Poster Woman and you've uh, you've done some fantastic work there images to do with independence I've got one in my own house and it's a picture of the wee ginger dog <laughs> so um, could, could we start by asking you about your background um, just a little sort of insight into how, your, your art and how you became involved in, in art really I suppose I think every everybody who gets involved in art gets involved when they're about five or six. That's when you really, you start drawing things and you think, oh, that looks like that. Actually, it looks like a dog. Oh my god, I'm so good at this. But I remember when I was young, I re- that was my one thing. When my grandma said to me, "What do you want to do when you grow up?" I would say, "I'm going to be an artist," and that carried on for many years until it came to the choice. And my mother, who was a very pragmatic woman, said oh no 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 you're going to get a real job Terry and I did get a real job I got a real job as an English teacher English was my other great love art and English are just language as well it's just such a joy and so therefore for a while I taught my own method shall I say I think that's probably the best way to describe it but I was telling you that um, one of There's a poem by Wordsworth, one that I've never been really keen on. It's about daffodils, right? It's really kind of pedestrian. But there's a line in it where he says, When oft upon my bed I lie in vacant or in pensive mood, they flash upon that inward eye, which is the bliss of solitude. It's very grandiose. But there's that one line, they flash upon that inward eye. That is a, a line of genius. Because when you think of memories, that's exactly what they are. They come from out of nowhere and they just bloom in your head. And for me, one of the best moments of teaching was on a Friday afternoon, I used to have to get this um, first year class, last period on a Friday afternoon. Now, anyone who's ever taught knows that last period on a Friday afternoon, 
you, you want a free period. You do not want a first year class. But that's what I got. And so I decided that what I would do, I would then, instead of just trying to make them work because it was pointless, I would read to them. We would do whatever story it was we were doing in class that I knew they wouldn't be reading at home. And I used to sit up on the desk and read directly to them. And this afternoon, it was absolutely pelting down, right? Stoughton off the streets outside. And it was lovely and cosy in the, the classroom. And I was reading, and it was The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, which is such a brilliant book anyway, right? And I was reading it to them. And they're supposed to be following it carefully on their books, you know, reading the words along with me. And we were about 15 minutes into the story when I stopped because of the silence that was there. And I looked up and every little person in that class was sitting like this. And I remember thinking, oh God, I love you first years. It was very brief, <laughs> very, very, very fleeting moment. But that often comes back to me and it comes back to me for many reasons, because when my kids were wee, I used to read to them. And well, the way every person does, right? I would read the weirdest and most wonderful things I could find and read them to them. And they loved it. And then when I got a bit older and I had boyfriends, well, no, I actually had boyfriends before I ever had children. That's how you get them. <laughs> but um, I remember reading to boyfriends and the boyfriends enjoying being read to. As we got older and older and older, we seemed to get further and further away from reading to one another. And I think that's why today so many people love these audio books mm. that they can turn it on and somebody, they don't have to do the work of reading because reading can be exhausting when you're in a hurry to get to the end of something, right? Somebody reading to you is a complete and utter pleasure. And I thought, one day, one day I'll get round to doing something that, that combines these two. And that's, I'm going, you're just going to have to put up with me. I'm going to ramble now for about 20 minutes. That's fine. We are totally enjoying <laughs> your ramble. Look, look, look I'm, I'm, sitting, I'm sitting like this. I'm in charge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love you. <laughs> just, keep, just keep going up because it is so interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I tend to sort of uh, witter on for ages, so you'll have to edit me out, but that's beside the point. One of the things I did during lockdown, you know how everybody went, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. I had, my life was filled with excitement. I had my studio, I was painting away in there, but I wanted to stretch myself. I really wanted to stretch myself and learn something that I really was frightened of. Because I, I believe every day that you're alive, you should learn something, but you should always try to do something which is a wee bit frightening. And for me, that frightening thing was to do with computers, okay? And I have a friend, uh, an artist called Lynn Howarth, who is one of the most amazing pastel artists you'll ever meet. She's astonishing. But she's also a tutor at um, Strathclyde Uni. And during the summer, last summer, she was doing a course, you know, a Zoom course on Procreate, which is a drawing app on the uh, iPad. So I took that course six weeks. And I first I thought, I nearly said a bad word there, but I'm now going to say, at first I thought I was this was really crap. I hated it, right? But as the weeks progressed, I started to get the hang of it. And I started to realize 
where I'd been doing all these independent supporting images for such a long time, but I was doing them all by hand. It was not by hand. You always use your hands, by but um, I was doing them all and it was taking hours to do just one. And, and I was doing this every day. It was really time consuming. And with Procreate, I discovered that you could sort of meld things. It was the most amazing thing. You could do a drawing of something and you could keep that drawing yes, and okay. add it into another thing at a later date. And that led me on to start, to, I started to do, I did all these independence things, lots and lots and lots. And every day there was another uh, vote I for independence, yes for independence, uh, we fat dogs for independence. <laughs> it just went on and on and on, cats for independence. But, um, but because I was drawing all these wee animals, I started drawing more and more from my grandchildren. I mean, there's an example. That was one of the drawings I did early on, right? Probably. So, uh, hey, can I interrupt you for one moment, um, Terry? And I'll tell you why. I'm just thinking that if some of our listeners, as they're listening, may well think, oh, I'd really like to see this, these images. So, the best place for them to see it would be on your Facebook and on your website, wouldn't they? Uh, my website's a bit dead at the moment because I'm in the process of trying to revitalize it. What I can do is I can put a whole wing of things up on my Facebook page in the next couple of days of these sort of drawings and they can go and have a look Your at them. Is just Terry House an artist, isn't no, it? No, no, just go for Terry House. Terry House and spell yeah. H-O-W-S-O-N. So if anyone has a wee look on Facebook, they'll see some of these wonderful images that you've done. They may also have to put up with my ranting about politics, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> but the drawings so led me, the drawings yeah. led me on to thinking, Oh, I could write a children's book. That would be quite a nice thing to do, to combine the love of English and the love of the drawing and all that. So I started. I started to do these wee drawings. And uh, very quickly, this book went from being a children's book to uh, a book with all these wee sweary Glaswegian animals in it. And I thought, you know what, Terry, you can't give this the way. <laughs> the mummies would be a bit annoyed with this. So I stopped. It was also getting a bit uh, dark, the story, right? So I stopped and uh, thought, well, I'm, I'm enjoying the story. I was really enjoying the characters. They were, they were growing every day. I, mm. I wasn't leading them. They were leading me. I was following them and their adventures. So I had to change the name altogether to A Ouija Story for Big Scots Wains. And it really is. It's the story of a crowd of little uh, nebby, Ouija animals, some of them pets, some of them no, and um, and how they get on in their big adventure. They've been chucked at, one of them's been chucked at the house. <laughs> it's, it's the story of what goes on, and it's, it's sounds, very sounds great. I can't, it sounds great. I can't wait to get my hands on that one. <laughs> it's, be, it's very surreal in parts, but I used to read, um, every day I used to read it to my partner, he lives in Prestwick. I found that it's very good to have a partner who lives as far away from you as possible. They, they, they like you more and you like them more. But anyway, I used to read to him every night. And this particular, and he loved it, absolutely loved it. And he'd phone me up and say, right, I'm ready for the story now. <laughs> and uh, right, okay. And this particular day, I'd been talking to a friend of mine about something completely different. And she told me something that I cannot repeat here cannot ever repeat here, 
but it, you know that way where you laugh and you snort and your tea comes down your nose? That's what happened with this story. So that night, I mean, it was a really outrageous story. So that night, I'm talking to Ray and I start to tell him this story. And instead of laughing, he stops and he says, that sounds like something Doris would say. And I said, Doris is a wee brune moose in the story, Ray. She's no real. And he said, and I quote, she is to me. <laughs> so when is, have you got arrangements already in place to publish your book? Um, no, what I've done is I applied to Creative Voice Scotland. They're looking for 40 new authors. It's quite amusing to be a new author at 71. <laughs> I'm just in the prime of my life here. <laughs> well, I mean, for our listeners, because they can't see you, I can tell you, you look a hell of a lot younger than that, Terry. I, oh, I was just thinking I'm, that myself. <laughs> I'm going to send a new gift soon, lasses, don't you worry. <laughs> but no, I decided that um, I would apply to Creative Voices because they're looking for 14 new authors, and I applied in the second wave. I think they'd already got 27 chosen. And what they'll do, if you get chosen, if you're lucky enough to get chosen, they will help with, um, they'll give you an editor and they'll help to get you published. Now, my theory is that uh, this book is written pretty much in Ouija, right? The people, the, the, the people in the story, the humans, all speak in uh, English because they're West End trendies, you see. And, uh, and be very possibly... just be very careful there. <laughs> it, it's okay, Marlene. I was one myself for many years. <laughs> so can I, can, I ask, can I ask you something? Can I ask you something? Yeah. You know, I know you said at the beginning, you know, during the lockdown, you were, you know, your life was full and you were doing all these things. And actually, to be in a way, that was my experience was a bit like that as well. Um, although I was very aware, of course. So many people in different circumstances with a lot of anxiety oh, yes. and worry about money and jobs and everything. And um, but I, just going back to that, and then you start to write. Um, I mean, do you think there's anything of the lockdown and the effects of the lockdown, you know, mentally that that are kind of coming through, even although you know maybe not in a very obvious way. I think it's. Uh... I think what happened is that being in lockdown forces you more inward, right? And your, your imagination starts to run riot. And instead of, for most people, they start worrying about their families and what's happening with their families and all that sort of stuff. I'm too mental to think like that. It just all goes to hell in a handcart. So what happened with me was when I started writing the story, I entered into these characters and it wasn't just one or two or three. There's, there's loads of them. There's a fox called Fergal the Fierty. There's uh, <laughs> Agnes, the old crawl wifey. There's, there's so many of them, right? And each of them has a story and each of them has a... And the stories were the things that kept... I would get up in the morning alive with the excitement of the backstory that I was just about to put in for somebody. And then I'd put that in and they'd suddenly go off on another tangent. Mm. It's like, as I said to Valerie the other day, I said, I'm getting very close to the end of writing this. And, and I spoke to a friend of mine who's a playwright in the States and she'd already said, oh, this is darling. 
thank you. And, she, and I said to her, um, I'm nearly finished. She said, well, that's great. I said, no. She said, no. I said, I don't want to finish it. And she said, you don't want to finish it? I said, I'll miss them. Oh. And she said, well, that's good. I hope you've got something else on the cards. I said, well, funnily enough, I have been thinking of it. She said, yeah, that means yeah. ready to finish yeah. it. Yeah. And that, that was quite, because uh, because I've never written an entire book. I've written before. I've never written an entire novel before. And so therefore this was quite a sort of illuminating thing. Oh, I'm ready to move on. Now, having said that, I was sitting last night and I was thinking, how am I going to end this? How is this going to end? I have more than two endings in my mind. Right? No spoilers, no spoilers, Terry. Oh, no, I'm not going to give you a spoiler. I'm going to tell you something very odd. I've decided that I'm going to write all the endings. Oh wow! I was just and thinking I'm going that. to let, and I'm going to let the people choose which one they want. That's very good. Yeah. Yes. So when you get yeah. to the end of the story, yeah. you will have this happened, or did it, or was it this, or could it have been this? Well, that's up to you. And we'll be really looking forward to hopefully that will come out once you get all the details sorted out. Well, if I don't manage to get uh, creative voices to do it, I'll try the uh, uh, stoting about uh, publishers and stuff. But feeling that I will start a crowdfunding thing and I'll do things like offer prints of the, the animals and all that sort of stuff and yeah. be willing to people change characters' names if people want to pay me a lot of money to do it. I would definitely so get into that. <laughs> you so want something? Terry. I'll find a wee bird called Valerie. <laughs> so that, it just sounds such an exciting project and we, we're looking forward to hearing more and to seeing it come to, to, come to fruition with all the beautiful illustrations as well. So Yes, it's a bit I, like, sorry, it's a bit like Beatrix Potter meets train spotting. <laughs> that's a oh, brilliant Oh God. That's a brilliant quote. <laughs> I've, I've, just, I've just had an image in my mind, one of the villages from train spotting and Beatrix spotted that actually I don't want to have in my mind. <laughs> I just you think... don't want to see a duck with his head down the pan. <laughs> I don't, I don't. <laughs> Mrs. Tiggy Winkle goes to leave. <laughs> so he, it sounds fabulous so let's <laughs> let's talk about maybe some other aspects because you've had a very very interesting um, life um, and one of the things that interested me is that somebody who taught French and who's all my days and who's got friend, you know, friends in France, I'm hoping to go over for a wedding in a month or so, but who knows if that'll be possible. So um, you lived in France for about 10 years in the void. I did indeed. Can you tell us a bit about that chapter of your life, Terry? I had reached the... I had got to the point with uh, my second marriage was over I'm not I'm not very good at marriages it's not my 40 right <laughs> and my second one was over and my younger daughter who is um, disabled she's severely autistic and a variety of other things I managed after a lot of fighting to get her into a school called Older Wesley Hall School in Derbyshire which was an amazing school but I'm still in Glasgow and um and I was part of that sort of art community, but because I had been married to um, a famous artist, um, there was a lot of attention and people would say, oh, poor Terry, you know, such a shame. Well, poor Terry was never poor Terry, but she'd had enough of that. Glasgow may be a big city, 
but it's full of little villages. <laughs> right? And I thought, I've had enough of this. I'm going to go off on my adventure. I've got a chance, an opportunity in my life to just go off and do something I want to do. And what I wanted to do was to go and live in another country, a place that would um, introduce me to something much more exciting and new from what I'd known. And I went off and I traveled all over France from the north to the south, to the, from the west to the east, to the up and down, roundabout. And I discovered that I actually hated the south of France where I'd always gone on holiday and thought it was wonderful. And then discovered that I found it filthy and full of tourists and people who spoke French in a very strange way. Sal de bang. I thought, <laughs> Can I to bang? <laughs> 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 Anyway, so I ended up, I went up to uh, Nancy in the north, which is a beautiful town. It's very Art Nouveau and it's lovely. And somebody said to me, have you been to such and such a spa? And I said, eh, oh, no. And I, I said, oh, that's, is that the modern one? They said, no, no, no. This is a spa in the Vosges. It's called Plombier-les-Bains. And I thought, yeah, let's go there. Let's go see what this is like. And you know that French expression, um, coup de foudre? Like a thunderbolt, um, it's like oh, love at first sight. It was yeah. the, the second I arrived, we came down the, the, the road in, it was all lined with trees that were beautifully planted. It was just beautiful. And we arrived in this complete 18th century town in a valley. They can't make it any bigger because they've, they've run out of hill, right? So it's all 18th century. And it's, uh, it's where Josephine came to take the waters because she was barren. It's where um, Eugenie, they built a chateau for Eugenie, the, Napoleon Antoine, Napoleon Antoine, I think. <laughs> but um, it's the most stunning wee place. And I thought, oh my God, I think this might be it. And I remember standing outside the um, the window of the estate agent, the local estate agent, looking at things. And she came out and introduced herself. And of course, I said, oh, just was the process, madame. Oh, the process, I said, magnifique, ça. Yes, it is magnifique. Yes, it is magnifique. And we went for a walk around. She showed me a couple of properties that um, were available. And I said, no, they're all very nice. But we were in the main square, which was just outside the spans, a little um, green bit with a, a Roman statue because it's Plombier-les-Bains. It was founded by the Romans. And we were across from this, this, the spa and I was looking at the houses across the road, these tall, sort of almost uh, Dutch Amsterdam-looking houses. And I said, no, I think if I was to live here, I would want to live in one of these, a flat even. And she said, well, as that would have it, and that's right, this one here is up for sale. So we went to see it. And it's like it was a, a movie. It sounds like a movie. Oh. <laughs> well, it gets, it gets interesting because when we went in, I thought, oh, dear, this needs quite a lot of work. I wasn't to know just how much work it actually did need, but I bought it because I fell in love with it. It was stunning. You can imagine the three musketeers charging in at any second, you know. (laughs) It was one of those things. I think I was also sort of very, I think the wine was too cheap. Anyway, this house was on five levels. 
I'm a wee woman with bad legs. What am I doing buying a house on fire? Up and down, up and down, up and down. My dog, Flora, was exhausted with it all. <laughs> there was one toilet in this building. One mm. toilet. It was on the second floor and it was on a dangerous outside balcony. You had to sidle along the balcony, holding onto the wall to get to the toilet. And when you sat down on the pan, oh, lucky day, there was a huge hole in front of your feet. <laughs> and it brought a whole new meaning to a whole load of things. So my first job was to get a plumber in to give me a toilet somewhere, right? So I decided that um, where the main sitting room was was where I was going to be living while I was doing the work. So I wanted access to that. And there was a horrible kitchen area off it that came through two big double doors. And I said, right, I want you to build, I want you to put a, a toilet here and they see, right? And he said, there's no walls. I said, the walls will come. <laughs> Don't worry about the walls. I need the toilet before I need the walls. Give me the toilet. So all day I'm buzzing up and down, buzzing up and down. Oh, I'm going to be able to go to a proper toilet and I'm so happy. And the moment he left, I mean, flushing things, right? And I'm sitting there happily, going about my business the way you do. And I looked up and I thought, the spa had rooms that it let out above, you know, the hotel. And I'm looking through my double doors to the French windows that look out of my balcony. And I look across and I think to myself, look at that. You can see people <laughs> they're looking out their windows. And then I realized, oh, if I can see them, then they can see me. So I gave a little royal wave. <laughs> I felt that wind. that was enough. Probably <laughs> well. So, and how long did you stay? You stayed there for 10 years. For 10 years, I rebuilt, I rebuilt this house from top to bottom. I kept it, uh, the French would say, oh, c'est chouette ici, c'est très cosy. <laughs> so um I changed it all around. I put a new roof on it. I not me personally, you understand, but I did do an enormous amount of work personally in it. And I made four um letting apartments for people who came for the cure or tourists. I also had my apartment, which was a great big two-bedroomed apartment, and I also had a little shop downstairs, and that's where oh. I sold paintings and drawings and things like that but also bits and pieces of uh, British tat basically because they loved it they like a bit of British tat but anyway <laughs> that's what I did but then eventually I started to have this um, real homesickness for Scotland real homesickness and Scotland when I'd left didn't actually have its own um, government oh. When, when, what, when were these 10 Two, years? 2000 to 2009, the end of 2009, okay. beginning of 2010. Yeah, right. And I was watching what was happening in Scotland and I was thinking, at last, at last, this is what I've been campaigning for since the 60s. And it's happening. And I'm over here. What am I doing over here? So I came home. I came home and I campaigned like a maniac, like a fanatic, like oh, all those icks, right? I campaigned, I campaigned, I campaigned. And the 19th of September, 2014, I don't think I've ever been so wet, so weepy as I was that day. 
but we went on and I went to Nicola's uh, gig at the Hydro oh, and yes. that was that was that was so splendid yeah so splendid yeah. And it renewed all the hope and fervor and all the rest of it. Yeah. So I mean, it's interesting. Sorry, just to interrupt mm -hmm. a wee bit. Um, it's just interested you saying that ten years that you were away. That was the same um nine years that I lived down in. Well, I was going to say down in England, actually in Wales, but it was right on the Welsh English border. Uh -huh. So I was away for the same period of time, and. Um, I mean, I still had family up here and, you know, I was up and down quite a lot. So it wasn't like you've been over in France. But I, I, I began to have the same sort of feeling. And I think it's fantastic. You're up in Scotland. People say, talking about what the government's doing, they mean Holyrood. That's, yes. That's where the focus of attention is. That's where people are thinking, oh, um, that's getting done. Good. That will affect me or... And of course, that didn't mean they weren't talking about Westminster, but when folk were talking about things that touched them, I just thought, actually, no, that's, that means Holyrood. And when they say the capital, that means Edinburgh. Yes. And uh, yes. it touched... It should be it Glasgow, actually, of course. Well, well it, it should, should be, Glasgow, be Glasgow, but, you know, <laughs> let's leave that aside. And, uh, and actually, and, and it wasn't long after that that I moved back up. Not, not quite for that reason, but um, I just oh, no, that thought... Was, that, that was instrumental in my thinking, yeah. but it wasn't the reason. I came yeah. back because my daughter kept having children <laughs> and, and I needed to get to know them and I did get to know them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was good. That was a good, good. thing. Good. I ask you then a bit more about independence um, and your involvement at the moment. You're involved in Yes Berwickshire, is that correct? Do, do you do? I am. I'm still involved in Yes Berwickshire, and there's um, quite a lot of activity going on. I know it's a cluster time, but I was wondering what's happening down there in Berwickshire. They're they're doing the best, but um, <laughs> I live in the past of the country where Tories roam free pets. It's it's. Uh, it's not as easy. It's not like being in Glasgow. No. And, uh, when I come home to Glasgow, I feel, oh, of course, this is this is where I should be. Yeah. But um, it's uh, it's different here. There's no question. And um, every every Thursday, the group of us get together. We call ourselves Sisters of the Baguette because we go to a little shop that's called Border Baguettes in Duns Square. And every Thursday at 11 o'clock, we all meet up and we sit there drinking loads and loads of coffee. It's very good coffee until, you know, that way you're desperate for a wee wee, but you're not going to go. And uh, we sit there for about three, four, sometimes five hours, ranting, raving about politics and laughing until, we nearly, until we're crying with laughter. It's hilarious. And at the beginning, the people all around us used to sit and tut and um, and we didn't care we carried on and now I think the girl who's in the girls in the shop love us when we come because we spend lots of money on coffee right and we're there hail rain wind sleet snow I in the winter time I used to go down with a hot water bottle <laughs> sit with up my coat as we sat outside but we do it every week without fail and since we've started doing it, we still get the looks and we still get people who come up and say things to us, but we're getting more people who are interested in what it is we're saying. And because there's a lot of laughter, we don't always, it's not all deadly serious stuff. I can't do series for too long. 
So there's masses and masses of laughter at this and talking about other things too. So you hear people, you see other, it's normally always other women sort of listening in, right? And they'll come up and maybe say something. Oh, it's fun to, it's good fun to see you again. It's lovely to see you again. <laughs> so we've become the the more acceptable face of independence. Acceptable <laughs> face of independence. Yes. I, th I think I think that's part of it. You know, is being visible and for people to realise that folk, yeah. the the people that have different ideas from their own are nice people that they might like, and and it kind of opens the door and plants little seeds of doubt and may, you know, into these dory minds. Even a little doubt may may. Oh, it's amazing the number of uh, young people who were you know from serious Tory backgrounds who are now turning towards uh, independence. It's quite, it's quite uh, interesting to watch it happening. There's more and more and more on a daily basis. Can but, I ask mm. you, um, Terry, about about your art? And we mentioned earlier how you know you've done quite well. You mentioned that you've done a lot of images connected with independence. Um, how do you think that the power of creative people? artists maybe writers musicians how how powerful do you think that is a force in the struggle for independence i think it's vital right i'm forever saying i hate leaflets okay i absolutely despise leaflets political leaflets that come through my door they either get all put into a great big envelope and sent back to the tories with other things with no stamps <laughs> on no stamps sent back with no stamps with extra things added in and or the mind boggles the, the Aldi the Aldi leaflet that week right or they go in the bin I I very rarely read these things and for a long time I've campaigned that we should actually do like I, I'll show you hold on a second I'm not going to bore you with too many of these but I did a whole load of postcards and my idea was that we'd put these through the doors because people can use them as a postcard and it's got a message on it. So you have. Oh, that's beautiful. Hi, Jenna. Yeah, yeah, that's lovely. Then we have, I've got another one with my generation want independence. So if just to for the listeners' benefit, you're you're holding up some postcards of beautiful images of young young women with they're almost all women powerful they're, slogans for independence. And do you know why they're almost all women? No, because I'm tired of hearing that it was the women who let down the vote for the independence. Mm -hmm. Because and especially as old women, we didn't let down the vote. No. Women were frightened by what they were being told. And I'm more cautious. Yeah. So these are aimed at women. Yeah. Every last one of them is aimed at women. And when I go on to do things like We Fat Dugs for Indy and the Cats for Independence and all that sort of stuff, sheep, I've had sheep, <laughs> all sorts of things, right? I think that, that that there makes a much more powerful statement than any amount of leafleting. Yeah, I think so. Any amount of leafleting. And the other thing I thought was that we could do beer mats with independence as normal. Oh, that's a good idea. And leave them around. And leave in, them around, yeah. In weather spoons. <laughs> and annoy <laughs> Tim. 
<laughs> oh, I love it. Does that mean yeah. you have to go into Weatherspoons to leave it? But still, you it's know, okay. some things, <laughs> some things you just have, have to grit your teeth and do. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, I thought beer mats with uh, with all sorts of things that will cause people to actually discuss it. An image that people go, what's this about? And it starts them to talk rather than a leaflet. Who are you talking to with a leaflet? And if it's somebody canvassing on your doorstep, they're just annoying you. You don't want them talking to you on your doorstep. You want them to go away. Stop talking to me about this. I mean, I have had so many run-ins with John Lamont. He knows me now. <laughs> God love him. That's he stays your... away. That's, your... I'm putting... That's my local Tory MP. Oh, right. Okay, of course. I've, I mean, those images, I've... it's a shame people listening actually can't see the images but maybe I'll, I, I, I look after the radio website um, so maybe I, I can get some of them from you and put them on the website but they're very they're beautiful they're really beautiful but they're quite just very striking even just seeing them the way I am at the moment and um, I'm sitting here thinking because the other thing the other group I uh, work with is uh, pensioners for independence and I'm just thinking maybe maybe we could get your mind to think about an image that would work to talk just to open up a conversation with older people who are, who I'm, I'm afraid we're still not we're still not persuaded. I've got, I've got a lovely drawing I did of a grandma, and it say uh, it says uh, I think it says give Scots grannies a better pension. Yeah, well, that, nobody yeah. can argue with that. Yeah, mm -hmm. I we I also in, think... our, in our group we uh, we started. Um, We've got a we've got a few leaflets that we've come up with. One of them is very factual, and it is very good. But it's not what you'd use to start off a conversation. It's what you'd use once you've got someone's once attention you're and you're just saying, "Oh, I need to go now." But here, have a look at that. But we've got another one that's just about, um, you know, gener the generations, younger generation and older generation talking to each other and it's quite a simple thing actually it's just something like that to it's like it's attention. terrific to have scotland the brief but that's only for when people are actually interested enough to want to know more you have to engage them first and as i keep telling people i'm a visual learner it's no point mm. in me to sit you know like when somebody yeah. says oh there's the hand there's the handbook look there's the handbook do you see do you see this handbook it's still in plastic do you know why it's still in plastic because if I try to read it, I'll go mental. <laughs> what I do, <laughs> I just learn from watching how people do things. Mm. That's I'm a visual learner, and there are people who are audio learners. There are people who will never learn, no matter how much paper you put in front of them. They won't read it, or they can't read it, or it doesn't go in. Whereas a, an image will quite often just arrest you. Those daffodils for Wordsworth. Yes, exactly. Just to bring uh -huh. us back to where we started, indeed. Yes. yes, yes. It's that moment where something just goes bing in your mind and you think, that's it. So that's it. I mm -hmm. think we're very fortunate to have creative spirits like your, yourself with all this wonderful talent on our side of independence. And uh, we've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you today. We're very much looking forward to seeing your book when we hope it comes out once the practicalities are worked out and we'd just like to thank you very very much um terry for talking to marlene and me today it's been an absolute pleasure to hear about all the 
the um, projects you're involved in. So thank you very much indeed. I'd like to say thanks very much, girls. It was lovely talking to you. <laughs> and I hope to talk to you again soon. Oh, oh just that is an idea. Just before you go, just before you go, one just one last thing, at the risk of sounding like Colombo. I googled you um, because I was trying to, you know, before we, we had the, the talk, to, before your interview, and here I came up on a story of your family having a visit from your cousin, Scylla Black. She was my dad's cousin. Yes, so Scylla is my dad's cousin. But what's, there is a, an amusing story. Years later, when Peter and I got married, we became, our best man at the wedding was um, Robbie Coltrane and Bob Geldof was also somebody that came to our wedding, right? So years later, my dad's sitting in his sitting room with his great grandchildren and they're watching something on the telly. And it was something about Scylla. And, it, and one of the wee ones said, all right, here we go again. Ah, Scylla, that's my cousin, you know. <laughs> and the other one says, any minute now, you'll be doing that story. Oh, Bob Geldof's a friend of our daddy's. <laughs> and uh, tell me, she always came across <laughs> as being a lovely person. Was she as nice in real life? She was genuinely lovely. She was a genuinely caring, considerate. When my mother was ill, um, she came to see her. She, she came all the way up to Glasgow to see her in the Western Infirmary. Huge bunches of flowers and things like that. And uh, she came to her funeral and all sorts. She was, she was sent uh, and sent cards and things. She looked after her family. She looked after her, you know, her mum and dad and all these sort of people. But she was genuinely kind. But I'll tell you something else. Bobby Willis, her husband, mm -hmm. was probably one of the most handsome men I ever saw when I was a kid. He didn't stay that way, right? Oh. Nobody ever does. <laughs> Right, but nobody ever does. I know. Nobody ever does. You've got to look for the souls, not for the looks. <laughs> so I just wanted to ask you about that because I thought it was another little fascinating uh, detail <laughs> from your very varied life. So thank oh. you so much. Yeah, thanks again for coming on. It's just great to talk to you. I have to say, it's I, I just love talking to other women. It's just one of those things. It's just such a joy. I've actually started. I'm doing. I'm in the middle of doing a new website. It's called Wild Women Workshops, W-Y-L-D-E, Wild Women Workshops. And it's just for women. And there'll be classes in oil and cold wax, which is the sort of thing I've got behind me, classes in procreate, classes in alcohol links. And I'm thinking I might even do like hen parties called Wine, Women and Dink. <laughs> well that's another another project we'll keep an eye on. Really enjoyed your interview and on behalf of Indie Live Radio, we wish you all the best. And yes. we'll hear from you in the future. I shall look forward to it. You're listening to IndieLive.radio. My name's Valerie Gold, and that was an interview recorded earlier this week with Marlene Halliday and I speaking to Terry Housen. So Good morning again. It's uh, it's another Friday, so it's another Friday daytime show on Indie Live Radio. Uh, this is Marlene Halliday, and I'm here again as usual with Valerie Gold. Hi, Valo. Hi there, Marlene. Yep, you doing okay this morning? Brilliant, absolutely too, fantastic. Too, too hot. It's too hot for me. So this morning, um, we've got two guests this morning, and we're here now with um, Lorna Robertson. Um, and Lorna, thank you so much for, for, for coming to, 
to come on the programme and uh, talk to us. We really appreciate that. And to let our listeners know, uh, we're going to be talking to Lorna about the Piper Alpha disaster that happened in the North Sea back in 1988. So the North Sea oil and gas started up, I think it was, it was the late 60s or thereabouts. That was when the first finds were found and it was expansion happened. There was Montrose Field, there was a 40s field. And Piper Alpha platform was part of that big expansion of the North Sea oil industry. It was 120 miles offshore from Aberdeen. And on July 6th, 1988, there was a massive explosion. Those of you who are old enough will remember that. Um, it, it was just a, a shock, uh, certainly a shock to Scotland, but I think much uh, wider than that as well. And 167 lives were lost in that explosion. So, Lorna, as I understand it, your, your husband was an oil rig worker and he was actually on the rig just a few weeks before that. Very thankfully, he was not there. Um, when it blew up, but he must have lost colleagues and, and, and no doubt friends. Um, so this disaster came came very close to home for you and your family, didn't it? I mean, what was that like for you and, and, and for the local communities? Well, I didn't hear about it until the next morning on the news. Um, I... David was actually offshore at that time on a different platform. Um, he jumped around quite a few different platforms. Um, so I didn't hear the news until the next day and it was just horrendous. Mm -hmm. um, you know, before that, when David worked offshore, I thought the dangerous thing was helicopters. <laughs> um and of course, they were, there, there was disasters with helicopters as well. Um, but I, I thought they were safe when they were on the platform. Obviously, they weren't. Um, yeah, um, I'm, I was in touch with quite a few survivors after the disaster. And um, the mark that it left on them was awful. Mm -hmm. You know, there was there was... The guilt that they felt because they had survived and others hadn't. And a lot of the problem was they were instructed to go up to the heli deck, which is very high up at the top of the platform. And a lot of men perished going, trying to get to the heli deck or actually on the heli deck. Those that used their own initiative and went down and jumped into the sea, a lot of them survived. Mm. Um, they just didn't do what they were supposed to do. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, my husband, especially after that, every platform, but every platform he went on, he checked it all out when he arrived. Mm. He went all through it, so he knew any escape routes if something happened. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Had had he ever been on the Piper Alpha platform himself? He had been. Um, I can't remember how how long before that, but 
maybe a few trips before that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he said he would never go back because he said it shuddered. He had been on a lot of different platforms and he felt that the guys that were permanently on Piper didn't realise that it sounded and felt different. Yeah, right. Um, he, he, when he came back, he said, I'm never going on Piper Alpha again. Um, it shudders. And he felt they were taking the oil out too quickly. Wow. Yeah. So, so you were in that kind of, you, you became involved in the struggle um, in the campaign to have more safety offshore, Lorna? My husband became involved primarily. Um, they set up a committee. Um, that didn't really happen until about a year after paper. Yeah. Um, and a lot of guys were just so horrified about what had happened. They felt something, you're going to have to do something yeah. about safety and union recognition offshore. Yeah. Um, I became involved because I had a bit of a background in finance and um, a, the, the, the work that I'd been doing previously, I'd been involved in keeping um, accounts and book work. And um, eventually they needed someone to do that. So it was a while before I became involved. Um, probably late 1989, um, I think. Yes, I can't remember. Yes. I mean, <laughs> I, I did a wee bit of just knowing we were going to be chatting to you here today. I, I did a wee bit of reading around and, I, and there was actually, there was another gas blowout, wasn't there, on another rig the, soon after? The, I mean, oh. it, I think one one guy got um, got killed. It wasn't anything like as big a... No, a big... I mean, the, the, that, that, that was a, 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 an oil rig rather than a platform. All right, um, okay. Yeah. Um, so there's... There's a distinct difference between yeah. them. Um, that was the Ocean Odyssey. Uh-huh. And what had happened, that guy, he was a young guy, 25, and he was the, ra- I think he was the radio operator, and he was told to go back into the radio room, and that was really why he lost his life. Um, I think other ones, I can't remember how they got rescued or if they jumped into the water or what happened. But that was how he died. And sometime after that, um, a survivor of the Ocean Odyssey came into the office, Hmm. um, very, very upset. Um, They were going to be doing an inquiry and he would be called. And um, I actually put him in touch with the Piper Outreach, um, which was... I, be, I still am very friendly with the, the, the woman that run the Piper out, Outreach. Um, she, um, that was her background, um, a social worker background. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah, and she set up the Piper Outreach for the survivors and for the bereaved. Yes, um, yes. To get together. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 not surprising that someone saw the need for that sort of, 
you know, support to give to people. I mean, I mean, it must have been such a shock. And I mean, did did it peep, um Did it put the men? I'm saying the men, but it was mainly men on the platforms and the rigs, wasn't it? Um, did it put guys off working there? Did some? Did guys just decide, I've had enough? I think it did. I, I, I don't really know. Um, but yes, I think yeah, it did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, and and I think after about about a year, there was um, maybe it even was um, around the first anniversary. There was there was a lot of um, uh, sort of sort of down down tools, offshore workers down tooled. I think to mark the first on anniversary the, on the on the anniversary, first yeah. anniversary, a lot of them. What they called um, sit-ins, but it was stoppages. They downed tools for an hour mm. to recognise what yeah. had happened. Yeah. Um, that wasn't popular with the oil companies, um, but that's what they felt they had to do. Yeah. Um, and they did that for quite a few years afterwards. They always held on the sixth of July. They always um, had an hour that they just thought about what had happened. Yeah, yeah. Well, can I, can I ask you, Lorna, about um, in terms of health and safety? I mean, it's not an, uh, a, a topic I know a huge amount about, but it seems to me that what I have read over the years, that health and safety on the rigs has been a real sort of no-go area and that a lot of the men were not unionised and the, the, the companies tried to dissuade um, unionisation and also um, that possibly, you know, that when people did, like just speaking to my uncle who, who worked, um, I think it was the Beryl one he, oil field he worked in, you know, that if anybody raised concerns about safety, you know, they were often seen as troublemakers, people. Yes, there were, there there. There was a situation called NRB, and if you were seen as a troublemaker, you were NRB, and that meant not required back. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and they, they would circulate that amongst the contractors, um, you know, and then they would find it difficult to find another job. Basically um, blacklisted, just blacklisted, basically. Yes, I mean... After the after the major sit-ins in nineteen ninety, um, um, a lot of the guys, over seven hundred, um, were blacklisted um, or never managed to get jobs offshore again. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean there was a blacklist. I mean we. My husband and I investigated that not all that long ago and discovered that his name was on a blacklist. Um, and that had happened to a lot of guys. You just weren't popular if you raised any safety concerns. I mean, the, 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 it was only after the Cullen inquiry um, that uh, the health and safety... Um, regime started looking at health and safety offshore. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so we're 
1989 thereabouts that that was when you you set up this committee it was called offshore industry liaison committee so was there what were your aims for that you and your husband were, and the others and the aim really was to um get health and safety sorted out offshore and with the help with the help of trade unions mm-hmm. bringing i mean there was at that time there were several trade unions involved um depending on what a person's trade was whichever union they were in um but the oil companies and the contractors were not impressed with trade union. you've got to remember that at the beginning um when when oil was first discovered, it was Americans. Um, you know, Aberdeen was full mm. of Yanks with yeah. their Stetsons and their, you know, I mean, you know, it was like a little a little America. Mm. Um, and of course, trade unions in America um, were an, a no-no. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so that mentality sort of, came over I suppose um yeah and of course a lot of the their their expertise was required um yeah. because yeah because we didn't know the we first thing about yeah. drilling for oil yeah yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. exactly and then of course that the, that was the background of the the people the American companies and managers coming in and I'm just sitting here thinking well you know, late 86, 87, 89, I mean, we'd had how many years of Mrs. Thatcher in mm-hmm. um, in in Great Britain at that point, who, who was no friend to the trade unions? No, 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 no. Um, and the, the main problem, the problem that the OILC had was trying to get the various unions to coordinate um, they were all looking after their own little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and we thought if we developed a committee that would sort of try to bring them all together, um, that that would help. But at the end of the day, it really, it, it, the problem is, um, or the problem was, and probably still is, um, most of the men are employed by contractors okay. and the contractors are employed by the oil companies um, and the contractors don't want to lose the contract, obviously. Um, so they're sort of walking on eggshells as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, OILC eventually became a trade union in its own right in 1992, I think. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, and it was just that happened because of the failures of the unions that were involved of in offshore. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and and you you worked for the OILC for for a long time, didn't you? Uh, yes, I started in late eighty nine, maybe early ninety, until I retired. In you no, know, I retired when I was. 63 um so but 
10, 12, 12 years ago, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I was there for over 20, about 20 years. Um, really, until when we were, there was a memorandum of understanding with the RMT. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. And we kind of got to the stage that we felt we might be better with a bigger organisation. Um, and that was why we merged with RMT. Um, and I sort of finished up all the OILC stuff before I went um, because RMT's system was completely different um, from what I'd developed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So would you say, Lorna, that the outcome of the Cullen Inquiry was a positive effect? Although the company, the oil companies weren't prosecuted or penalised, um, I believe that, you know, that the Cullen Report, which lasted nearly two years, made, you know, over 100 recommendations for safety improvements and found that, um, you know, there were a lot of warnings and catastrophic failures that had been ignored would you say that that Cullen inquiry, although it didn't punish the oil companies, would you say it had a positive influence on safety for the the men on the rigs, as mainly men? Yes, yeah, yes, I would definitely say it did. It did have a positive. Um, yeah, I mean, Lord Cullen spent a lot of time and energy. Um, speaking to survivors, oil companies, everyone, um, you know, so he, he really, I mean, there's, there's two big volumes um, of the Colin Inquiry. Um, but yes, I'm, 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 I'm sure it did have a positive effect, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And there was, there were also as the years went. I mean, as the years went by, did it, did it sort of fade from people's minds? I mean, I'm not meaning the families themselves who were involved. That, that, you know, that's not going to happen. That's not going to fade from their minds. But you know, in general terms, did it kind of fade a bit in terms of you know Aberdeen being you know oil capital of the UK and yes, you you've got to remember. Um... It's thirty-three years ago. Yes. Um, yes. So there's a lot of there's a lot of young people who perhaps are now working offshore wouldn't even know about Viper Alpha. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, it, yeah. It's only it's only people like, for instance, my age or round about um, that would really understand the impact of what happened that night. Um, yeah. I, I think a lot of a lot of people now that work offshore don't really think about it. I don't know. Mm. Um, I mean I know there were there was um I mean there may have been more than two, but I know there were at least two sort of commemoration um, get-togethers that weren't there. I think there was one after 25 years and we'd probably been, I think the other one was after 30 years up in Aberdeen. 
where people did a, you know, there was a commemoration ceremony. Yeah, I mean, actually the Queen Mother came and I think she came and unveiled the statue. Um, no, I can't remember which anniversary that was, but yes, there was there was one um, on the 25th and one on the 30th, mm -hmm. um, where a lot of the relatives of, you know, a lot of the bereaved families came. Um, I always, I always went, especially to to those particular ones, but I try to go up every year if I can. Mm. Um, just to say, I mean, I became very friendly with um, Sue Jane Taylor, who um, made the, the memorial, um, and also one of the survivors who um, didn't sit for, but stood for one of the figures on the memorial. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the survivors did that, and I was friendly with him and his wife. Um, so yes, I, I became quite involved in sort of side bits. You know? Yes, um, indeed. Yeah. It's 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 been a big part of your life, hasn't it? It, it was a big part of my yeah. life. Yeah. Or is there a garden? Or a I'm the just... statue's definitely Hazel Head, and there is something in Strathclyde Park in Glasgow. All right. Okay. I'm just looking mm. online here and it says that the memorial was unveiled by the Queen Mother on the 6th of July, 1991. Yeah, I mean, I've got I've got photographs. Just to follow mm. up what you were saying there. So mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. You obviously remember that very, you know, vividly. I was um, I was reading I was reading on a couple an article that and there was this one. Um, oh, this was after the 25th. Um, Piper Twenty Five. Uh, I think there was a a a big three day safety conference up at Aberdeen in the exhibition centre that they'd been held. Obviously, it um you know it 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 coincided with the with the anniversary and and that would have been some years after uh, the Deepwater Horizon disaster. I think that was in two thousand and ten. Anyway, um, to get back to the the, the safety conference, that there was I what I noticed in the article I was reading was um, that there was one of the speakers there. Well, she was the chair uh, Judith Hackett. She was the chair of the United uh, United Kingdom Health and Safety Executive. She was speaking there, just warning global oil and gas industry executives about um, the dangers of complacency, which you know I thought was quite interesting coming from the head of the HSE, and. She said, um, she said at the time was that marking the 25th anniversary of Piper Alpha disaster was important and using it as an opportunity to reflect on how they all need to get better at, at sort of embedding learning from the past. And there was one thing that struck me. She said um, to quote her, while the precise circumstances and context of major incidents differ in some respects and some in others, at heart, she's left with the feeling that there are no new accidents, rather there are old accidents repeated by new people. 
And that that really struck me, actually. I thought, God, she just got that, you know. Yeah, really... She had the nail on the head. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it ties in with what you're saying. It's like, you know, it's 33 years ago. And, I mean, even, you know, the Deepwater Horizon one, that's, what, 11 years back now. Um, and, you know, people forget. And, and of course, folk need jobs and they want, you know, there are good jobs out there. Um, but, yeah, it's obviously important that less so it's, it's, it's all down to money. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's that's the, the bottom line. Yeah. Um, and and at, the, at the day of Piper Alpha, um, there were several other platforms pumping into the same pipe, I think the same oil pipe, or yeah. the pipe that was taking everything to land. And that was really what caused the massive explosion. Wow. Um, and apparently um, the OIM, the, the offshore installation manager on one of the platforms, um, that was connected. They were all occidental. It was a big network, wasn't it? Yes, it was a network, and they were all occidental. He had to get permission, I think, from Houston before he could shut it down. And he wanted to shut it down himself, um, but he couldn't because he had to wait for Mm. specific permission. and at the end of the day, it was all down to money. Yes, and and, and it's, I mean, it's the same. It's the same with the 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 one in America. Um, you know, it's all hurry, 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 rush, rush, rush. Yes, get, get the oil out. Yeah, yeah, know. make make the money. And mm-hmm. and I mean, it's the same system as well, isn't it? So you've got you know the big oil companies. They do the exploration. They find find the oil fields. They want to get start extracting the gas and the oil as soon as possible, but actually they don't necessarily do it themselves. They subcontract it. So yes. you know, so you've got this hierarchy of firms involved, and and the kind mm-hmm. of thing you've just said, one guy working actually there has to refer to halfway around the world, mm-hmm. to um you know to get to get permission. To get instruction. Yes, yes. and it was the same. It was the same at Deepwater Horizon. I mean, exactly. it was a BP one, but it was a another company that was running running right. extraction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, that was another horrendous. Oh, it was. Yeah. 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 So, Lana, how long were you involved? You you must have a lot, you know, a long involvement with this oil industry liaison committee. That was that was something you were involved with right from the beginning with your husband. I think about it worked out about twenty years. So until you must, I retired. <laughs> you must have given an amazing amount of support to people over that period in time. I tried to, yes, I tried to. Um, there, there was another incident um, to do with a helicopter um, going on a stormy night from um, the Brent Alpha. Uh-huh. Um, that, that helicopter shouldn't have flown that night. Um, it was too stormy. Um, and again, I I didn't hear about it in the news 
But one of the guys on the committee phoned me and said, look at the news. And he had worked on this particular, um, I think he'd worked on that platform. But anyway, there's a guy in the committee and it must have happened on a Saturday night. So I had nothing else to do but go into the office on Sunday morning and field phone calls. And it's, it amazed me and still did years later that a lot of men, I don't think they discussed their work when they went home. And a lot of women, a lot of wives, didn't even know which platform their husband worked on. Yeah, they just knew that they worked offshore. They worked offshore, that was that was all. And I mean, you know, offshore workers come from all over. Yeah. Um, they don't just come from Aberdeen or from Scotland, they come yeah. from all over. A lot from abroad and from down in England. And... Yeah, a lot, I think, a lot in um, the northeast of England. Um, oh, one of the one of the diving uh, survivors, he came from the south of England, um, and there was people from abroad mm. um, as well. Maybe not as much then as there would have been later on, um, but yeah, people from all over, and it really surprised me that. Wives didn't know which platform they were. I used to, I got phone calls years and years and years later from people looking for a lost brother Mm. or, you know, wondering if they had been on Piper Alpha and that's why they'd never heard from them. Oh, my goodness. Really weird. And did the the oil company not have, like, a proper register of who was all on the... Oh, there was, there was a register. I mean, we had a we had a copy of the register wow. exactly who who was who had survived and who had died. Yeah. And we had a copy of the record. So I mean, I could look through the record and say to this person, "Well, no, he wasn't on paper Alpha." Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember it quite vividly at the time. Um, my mum and I remember being in my mum and dad's house, and they lived in. Um, in Montrose at the time and my mum being worried sick because um, because of my uncle, her young brother worked on the rigs and she, again she wasn't 100% sure which rig was on mm-hmm. but she, she was pretty sure he wasn't on the Piper Alpha but you know there's always that doubt in your mind you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you weren't, you, you were by no means just the person who did a bit of the accounts and kept the admin going, uh, Lorna. You obviously had a other roles there, and obviously part of that was just, you know, looking out for people and doing what you could to support them. Yes, yes, and manning the phones and um, looking after everything. When um, my colleague at that time, it was Ronnie McDonald, when, when he was away, I mean... At the beginning, um, when we first started, he spent a lot of time touring the country and speaking to oil workers in various places, mm-hmm. like at Liverpool and Newcastle, um, Dundee. Yeah. Um, there was always meetings in Aberdeen. So there was meetings organised for oil workers all over the country, really. 
Um, so he would be away quite a lot of the time. So I would be left to manage the place. Uh, yeah. So basically all that work being done by three or four people? Basically, there was only two of us um, yeah. that, that actually, I mean, at the beginning, we didn't take wages. Mm -hmm. There wasn't any way of doing that mm. because we weren't an, a legal entity. Um, Ronnie decided we would become the Offshore Information Centre and then become a legal entity so that we could register with HMRC and um, take wages. Um, I always kept myself under the tax and national insurance law. <laughs> so it was about £40 a week I got um, until things improved. Um, but I mean, the only way that was donations from offshore workers yeah. um, wanting to keep the thing going and, and get it for, you know, to... I mean, when it, when it came to August 1990, when the major sit-ins happened, um, there was a lot of money to be spent on various things. I mean, at one point we hired a fishing boat <laughs> to, go, to go out to one of the platforms and with a big banner saying OILC. And, um, that cost a few bob. <laughs> and then Shell, Shell tried to take us to court um, to get the men off the platform and Ronnie had to deal with that with the lawyer obviously that all had to be paid for um there was a lot of expense at that time um trying yeah. to keep the thing going <laughs> so you weren't you definitely weren't the oil company's favorite bunch of folk then we weren't popular with the americans either um we no. had a visit from an american um I don't know if he was from the American consulate or he was an ambassador. I don't know. He just went, he was shown into Ronnie's office. But the Americans were very perturbed that there might, the North Sea was a stable environment for them. Yeah. And they were very worried when it appeared to become unstable as far as they were concerned. Um, I don't know what the conversation was. I wasn't privy to it. I was in another office. <laughs> I was in another room. You didn't. You, you yes. went sitting there with a glass on the wall yeah. to listen so, in a bit. <laughs> it's quite different um, from when I was there, and it was a small, compact organisation. But now it's RMT, yes, and it's a whole different ball game, yeah. which I don't really understand i mean you know um when it was just oilc and it was compact and you got to know everybody there was guys coming into the office all the time and you know you could chat to them and that but i think offshore's changed a lot um since since my time so listen lola it's just been it's been really it's been really fascinating talking to you and I mean, actually, what sticks in my mind, having chatted to you now for, for half an hour or so, um, it's just this sort of, it's so typical. I mean, I'm not going to say it's just Scottish. I'm sure this happens in other countries as well, but <laughs> it's fairly typical, isn't it? It's like this, this small, 
compact group of folk in, in, you know, in, in, in the case of OIL, OILC, maybe three or four people, and you really come together, there's a need there, you make things happen and, and keep it happening for years and years, and yeah, then you know, it develops into something different and becomes, in this case, part of RMC. But I, I just find that kind of um, you know, small group of people seeing a need, getting in there, and making it happen, and uh, it's quite it's quite inspiring. And I I doubt there's very many people now, um, you know, around around Scotland who would know what um what that what the the four of you have three or four of you have really done. But anyway, it's been really good hearing about it from you. And yeah, thanks very much for for coming and speaking to us. Oh, thank you for asking me. <laughs> That's very much fun. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Good. You're listening to IndieLive.radio and that was an interview with Lorna Robertson talking about her experiences in the wake of the Piper Alpha disaster in 1988. That's the end of today's daytime show. If you've missed any of it, it's all repeated again on Saturday evening starting at 7pm. All of our daytime show interviews are available on our on-demand channels. You can find them on SoundCloud, also on Podbean. Just search for Scottish Independence Podcasts. And keep in touch with us on Facebook, on our Facebook page, Indie Live Radio. We hope you've enjoyed the show today, and if you carry on listening, Music Mix is up next at 1 o'clock. 3 o'clock, there's Was Like Us, which is a Scottish music hour, lots of indie from the last 20 years up until today. At four o'clock, there's a new Scottish music hour mix of all genres, but focusing on new Scottish bands. And this evening at seven o'clock, as usual, it's music and musings with Steve B. Tomorrow morning, Saturday at 10am, is the James E. Show. Dr. Dave is on in the afternoon at three o'clock. We're constantly updating our music library and the music mix programmes gives you a variety of music taken from that library. It's different every time you listen to it. Val and I will be back next week with the next edition of the Daytime Show. Indie Life. Indie Life. Indie Life.